thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. It's a new year. It's a new book. We are now into book three of Mackey's Revised History of Freemasonry. Book three starts with chapter 57, Early Freemasonry in Scotland. What the tradition of York is to the Freemasons of England, that of Kilwinning is to the Brethren of Scotland. The story tracing the birth of the Order to the noted Abbey of Kilwinning was for many years accepted as the reliable history of Scottish Freemasonry. Thus, Sir John Sinclair, in his statistical account of Scotland, states that a number of Freemasons came from the continent to build a monastery at Kilwinning, and with them an architect or master mason to superintend and carry on the work. This architect resided at Kilwinning, and being a good and true mason, intimately acquainted with all the arts and parts of Freemasonry, known on the continent, was chosen master of the meetings of the brethren all over Scotland. He gave rules for the conduct of the brethren at these meetings, and decided finally in appeals from all the other meetings or lodges in Scotland. This tradition has been accepted by the author of Laurie's History, who says that Freemasonry was introduced into Scotland by those architects who built the Abbey of Kilwinning. He connects those architects with a trading association of artists who were engaged in the construction of religious buildings on the continent, under the patronage of the Pope, and who provided builders for both England and Scotland. This author suggests, as an evidence that Freemasonry was introduced into Scotland by these foreign workmen, the fact that in a town in Scotland where there is a beautiful and famous abbey, he had often heard that it was erected by a company of industrious men who spoke in a foreign language and lived separately from the townspeople. The Abbey of Kilwinning, which has been claimed as the birthplace of Freemasonry in Scotland, was in the town of the same name and in the country of Ayr, about 25 miles from Glasgow, on the southwestern coast of Scotland. It was founded by Hugh de Morville, High Constable of Scotland, in the year 1140. The Abbey is now and has long been in ruins, though what remains of it proves, says Robert Wiley, who has written a history of the Mother Lodge Kilwinning, the zeal and opulence of its founder, and furnishes indubitable evidence, fragmentary as it is, of its having been one of the most splendid examples of Gothic art in Scotland. Only very recently is it that anyone has attempted to deny the authenticity of the legend which traces the introduction of Freemasonry into Scotland to the workmen who came over in the 12th century to build the Abbey of Kilwinning. Brother D. Murray Lyon has attacked the tradition, together with some others connected with Scottish Freemasonry, all of which he believes to be without historical support. The tradition, however, like that of York among the English Freemasons, has not wanted its zealous supporters among the Scottish brethren, and more especially among the members of the lodge at Kilwinning, which claims to have a legitimate descent from the Pioneer Lodge founded in the 12th century by the foreign architect who settled in that town. However, there has been an attempt to trace the introduction of the order into Scotland to a much earlier period. One writer, cited by Wiley with apparent approval, 
says that Scotland can boast of many noble remains of the ancient buildings, which plainly show that the Romans, when they entered the country, brought along with them some of their best designers and operative masons, who were employed in rearing these noble fabrics of which we can at this day trace the remains. The assertion is made that these Roman builders taught to the natives and left behind them a respect and knowledge of Freemasonry, which have descended from them to the present generation. Probably more is here claimed than can be proved by history. The influence exerted upon English architecture by the Roman colleges of Freemasons is very clear, as has already been shown. The Romans had been able to make for centuries a home in England, had introduced into it their arts of civilization, and made it in every respect a colony. But Scotland had never been completely taken over by the Romans. The visits of the legions were altogether of a fighting nature, nor are there many evidences from their remains that the Roman artists had been able to make, or had even attempted to make, the same impression on the warlike Scots and Picts that they had produced on the more easily controlled peoples of the southern part of the island. The theory in crediting the introduction of Freemasonry to Scotland to the workmen who came over from England or from the continent in the 12th century, and erected the religious buildings at Kilwinning, Melrose, Glasgow, and other places, is a much more likely one. Bodies of traveling Freemasons were at that time in existence, and we know that they were going about the continent and erecting buildings for the church. We know, too, that at that period there were corporations or guilds of Freemasons in England. A very fair inference from historical reasoning, though there be no written records to confirm it, is that the churches and abbeys erected in Scotland during the 12th and 13th centuries must have been the work of Freemasons who came from England and from the continent. Brother D. Marie Lyon, the historian of the Lodge of Edinburgh, has said that not the slightest vestige of authentic evidence has ever been adduced in support of the legends in regard to the time and place of the institution of the first Scotch Masonic Lodge. This is, however, a merely local question affecting various claims to position on the role of the Grand Lodge, and must not be mixed up with the question of the introduction of the Freemasons into Scotland as an organized society of builders. Brother Mackey believed this event could be credited to the time when church buildings were patronized by King David I, which was toward the close of the 11th and the beginning of the 12th century. The Mother Kilwinning Lodge at Kilwinning, the St. Mary's Chapel Lodge at Edinburgh, and the Freeman St. John's at Glasgow have each preferred the claim that it is the oldest lodge in Scotland. Each has its proof and each has its followers, and the dispute has at times waxed warm among the Scottish Freemasons. However, as a matter of general history, that is of minor importance. The reader has seen that we are almost compelled to suppose that the institution of Freemasonry was introduced to Scotland by the builders who were engaged in the erection of religious houses from the 11th to the 13th centuries. Brother Mackey could not get over the belief that these builders formed part of a fraternity which already existed in the continent of Europe and in England, and was then engaged in the same occupation of constructing cathedrals and monasteries. We need not at this stage go at length into the matter of the various points leading to the conclusion that there was a unity of mind that caused these remarkable buildings to have the impress of closely related designs. Such an effect might be due to the labors of a single force or company of Freemasons, or it might be the result of some one superintending source of authority outside and beyond any organization of that kind. A thorough study of the situation not only calls for a critical examination of early building, but of the relations and work of the Freemasons, the Benedictines, and similar organizations. Knowing from other evidence what were the customs of these traveling Freemasons, and that wherever they were engaged in the labors of their craft, they established lodges. 
we are again forced to the belief that in Scotland they followed the practice they had adopted elsewhere and erected their lodges there also. Doubtless, there is no authentic evidence that the modern lodges at Glasgow, at Kilwinning, and at Edinburgh are the true successors of those established by the Freemasons who were engaged in the construction of the cathedral, the abbey, and Holyrood. Indeed, it is very probable that they are not. Nor is there any historical material which will enable us to determine which of these lodges was first established by the medieval builders. The probability is, as Brother Lyon has suggested, that the erection of the earlier Scottish lodges was at nearly the same date as wherever a body of medieval Freemasons were employed, there were also the elements to constitute a lodge. The facts, therefore, would appear to be that lodges must have existed in Scotland from the time when those buildings were being erected, and that any Freemasons who came over from the continent to erect those structures brought with them the Freemasonry of overseas. We cannot prove these facts by historical records of absolutely orthodox type, but we can see no reason for denying or doubting their likelihood. Crediting the introduction of Freemasonry into Scotland to the Continental Freemasons, we have some evidence that at a later period there was a considerable influence exercised by England on Scottish Freemasonry. This is apparent from the fact that the constitutions used in the Kilwinning Lodge and therefore used in other Masonic bodies founded by it in the middle of the 17th century and known as the Edinburgh Kilwinning Manuscript is a nearly exact copy of an English manuscript and contains a charge to be liegemen to the King of England without treason or other falsehood. This manuscript, kept in the archives of the Kilwinning Lodge and known, says Lyon, as the Old Buck, was often copied. These copies were sold by the Lodge of Kilwinning to lodges, which then received charters from it. The fact that these constitutions require loyalty to the King of England, that the legend which refers to the introduction of Freemasonry to England and its later growth, dwells on the favor extended to the craft by the English kings, and finally that the account contains no allusion to the kill-winning or other Scottish legend, induce brothers Hugin and Lyon to come to the conclusion that the manuscript was brought from England into Scotland. They further agree that its adoption by the Kilwinning Lodge, and by those chartered by the latter body, proves that the Freemasonry of England exercised in the middle of the 17th century a very great influence over that of Scotland. This influence, as it will be seen, was still further exerted in after times digesting the rituals and ceremonial customs of the two countries. This English influence on Scotch lodges at so early a period is a fact of great importance in the history of Freemasonry. From it is to be presumed that there was a close intimacy and frequent communication between the Freemasons of the two countries. We may also fairly assume that there was a marked similarity, indeed, in many respects, an identity of practices in Scotland and England. Therefore, we may with great safety apply what we know of the Freemasonry of one country to that of another, where we have no other knowledge but that which is derived from such a comparison. Now it is well known that while the literature of English Freemasonry is sadly wanting in authentic records of lodges which existed prior to the revival of 1717, the Scottish lodges have preserved original minutes or records of their proceedings as far back as the end of the 16th century. Brother Lyon, in his History of the Lodge of Edinburgh, has torn away with an unsparing hand the misfitting garments which the imaginations of Anderson and Brewster, Laurie's edition, had cast around the statue of Masonic Scottish history. It will not be safe in writing such a history to lose sight of the clean-cut criticism of Lyon and trust to the faulty and misleading claims of early historians. We are told that at the beginning of the 12th century, Freemasons had been imported into Scotland from Strasbourg, Germany, 
for the purpose of building Holyrood House, and that in the middle of the same century other Freemasons were engaged in erecting Kilwinning Abbey. From these times, historians have been inclined to date the origin of Scottish Freemasonry. We have no documents referring to that early period, but we learn that King David I, who then reigned, was what Anderson would call a great patron of Masonry, and that he nearly beggared the kingdom by the freedom with which he invested its resources in the construction of religious buildings. But it is not until we reach the commencement of the 15th century that we begin to find any records which seem to indicate the existence of a craft or guild like that which we know at the same time existed in England. We do not assert here that there were no lodges or guild meetings in the 12th, 13th, and 14th century. Judging from the condition of things in England at that time, we may conclude that guilds or lodges of Freemasons were in existence also in Scotland, but we have no documentary evidence of any authentic value to sustain the belief. The first period in which Freemasonry in Scotland begins to assume a historic form is at the commencement of the 15th century. James I had really been a prisoner in England from the year 1406 to 1424. During those 18 years of his enforced absence, the kingdom had been greatly harassed by the fights of what were called leagues or bands among the craftsmen of the different trades, including the Freemasons, and which might be compared to the modern trade unions and to strikes. James I returned to Scotland in 1424. He at once began to correct the abuses which had resulted from these unlawful bodies. He crushed the leagues and instituted the office of deacon, or masterman, as a method of protecting the community from any frauds that might creep in among the crafts. For this purpose, the deacons were authorized by Act of Parliament to regulate the works of all the crafts, to establish the rate of wages, and to punish any who should offend against the law. But these powers were found to be in many instances a burden on the people and an attack upon the privileges of the town and city authorities. They were, after a year's trial, set aside, and a new class of officials was instituted called wardens, one of whom was selected from each trade. These wardens were not the representatives of the crafts, but were closely related to the town councils of each burg, whose rights they exercised in regulating work and wages. Now the Freemasons, who originally came to Scotland in the 12th century from the continent and from England, had enjoyed the privilege from the Pope of regulating their own concerns and even of arranging their own wages. This privilege they must, of course, have given to their successors in Scotland, and it was there apparently exercised up to and including the time of the institution of deacons, under whom the trade and craft unions used the same right of action. But when that deaconship was abolished and the wardens established as representatives of the municipal authorities, this right of regulating their own concerns was taken from the craft. To this there was naturally resistance. Brother Lyon tells us that the deacons continued holding meetings of their respective crafts for the purpose, doubtless, of keeping alive the embers of discontent at their degraded position and organizing the means for carrying on the struggle, not only to regain independence of action in trade affairs, but also to acquire a political status in the country. There is nothing in the history of the reigns of the two succeeding kings, James II and III, that connects them with the Masonic fraternity. None of the acts of the Scottish Parliament during those two reigns has any special reference to the craft of Freemasons. James III is said to have had a passionate attachment for magnificent buildings. Beyond this, says Brother Lyon, his name cannot in any special degree be associated with Masons. But in truth, though documentary evidence of particular facts may be wanting, this tendency to the erection of fine buildings must have led the king to bestow his favor upon that fraternity whose duty it was to put them up. Brewster, Lorry's edition, 
has sought to give an importance to the reign of James II by claiming that the king had invested the Earl of Orkney and Caithness with the dignity of Grand Master of the Freemasons of Scotland, and later on he made the office succeed to his heirs and successors in the barony of Roslyn. This statement, long accepted by Masonic writers and by all the Freemasons of Scotland as a fact, has been proved by more recent researches to be unsupported by historic evidence and even to be contradicted by those trustworthy documents which are known as the St. Clair Charters. There are two charters bearing this name. They were once the property of Alexander Duker and were purchased at the sale of his library by Dr. David Lang of the Signet Library, and exchanged by him for other documents with Professor Aitun of the University of Edinburgh, who presented them to the Grand Lodge of Scotland, in whose archives they are still preserved. The manuscripts have been carefully examined, and their authenticity is beyond doubt. The date of the first of these manuscripts is not given, but from internal and other evidence it seems fair to assume that it was written in the year 1600 or 1601. It is signed by William Shaw as Master of Work and by several Freemasons of Edinburgh and various towns of Scotland. We do not think it necessary to give the full text of the manuscript, as it has been printed by Laurie, by Lyon, and by others, but its substance may be cited as follows. The manuscript begins by stating that the Lords of Roslyn have from age to age been patrons and protectors of the Freemasons of Scotland and of their privileges, and as such have been acknowledged and obeyed that within a few years past this position has from sloth and negligence been allowed to go out of use, whereby the Lord of Roslyn has been lying out of his just rights, and the craft been without a patron and protector, and other evils have arisen. Wherefore it goes on to say that not being able to wait on the tedious and costly courses of the ordinary courts, the signers in behalf of all the craft and with their consent agree that William Sinclair of Roslyn and his heirs shall obtain at the hands of the king liberty, freedom, and jurisdiction upon them and their successors in all times to come, so that he shall be acknowledged by the craft as their patron and judge under the king. The second charter, which claims to be issued by the deacons, masters, and the freemen of the masons and hammermen of Scotland, is supposed by Lyon with good reason to have been written in the year 1628. This document is confirmatory of the other, making the same statement of the recognition of the Sinclairs of Roslyn as patrons and protectors of the Scottish craft, but adding an additional fact which will hereafter be considered. Upon this authority, Brewster has said in Laurie's history that King James II had granted to William St. Clair, Earl of Orkney and Caithness, Baron of Roslyn, the office of Grand Master, and made it hereditary to his heirs and successors in the Barony of Roslyn. And he adds that the barons of Roslyn, as hereditary grandmasters of Scotland, held their principal annual meetings at Kilwitting. Anderson had previously asserted that James I had instituted the office of grandmaster, who was to be chosen by the Grand Lodge, and this, he says, is the tradition of the old Scottish masons and found in their records. The language of Anderson shows that he was not acquainted with the St. Clair Charters, as they are called. If he had seen them, it is not likely that he would have omitted to take notice of the important part of hereditary occupation. But the authority of Anderson as a reliable historian is of so little value that we need not discuss the question whether any such tradition ever existed. The statement made in Laurie's history is, however, professedly based on the authority of the St. Clair Charters. This statement has been criticized by James Maidment in his Genealogy of the St. Clairs of Roslyn, by Lyon in his History of the Lodge of Edinburgh, and by several other writers. 
The statement made in Lori's work depends for its truth or its fallacy on the question whether these charters have been faithfully and correctly explained or not. Therefore, it will be necessary in making the issue to study more particularly the exact language which is used in these documents. The words of the first charter, rewritten into the common tongue from the Scottish dialect of the original, are as follows. We, deacons, masters, and freemen of the masons within the realm of Scotland, with express consent and assent of William Shaw, master of work, to our sovereign lord, for as much from age to age it has been observed among us that the lords of Roslyn have ever been patrons and protectors of us and our privileges, likewise our predecessors, have obeyed and acknowledged them as patrons and protectors, while through negligence and sloth the same has passed out of use. We, for ourselves, and in the name of all our brethren and craftsmen, consent to the aforesaid agreement, and consent that William St. Clair, now of Roslyn, for himself and his heirs, shall purchase and obtain at the hands of our sovereign lord liberty, freedom, and jurisdiction upon us and our successors, in all times coming, as patrons and judges to us and all other professors of our craft within this realm, so that hereafter we may acknowledge him and his heirs as our patron and judge under this, our sovereign lord, without appeal or declination from his judgment, and with power to the said William to deputize one or more judges under him, and to use such ample and large jurisdiction upon us and our successors in town and in country as it shall please our sovereign lord to grant him and his heirs. The second charter is but a repetition of the statements of the first, with a few additional details which make it a longer document. It approves and confirms the former letter of jurisdiction and liberty made and subscribed by our brethren and his highness formerly master of work for the time to the said William St. Clair of Roslyn. There is, however, one statement not to be found in the first charter and which is of much importance. It is stated that the St. Clairs of Roslyn had letters of protection and of other rights which were granted to them by His Majesty's most noble progenitors of worthy memory, which, with sundry others of the Lord of Roslyn's writings, were consumed and burnt in a flame of fire within the castle of Roslyn, in an... The last two words are in an, evidently meaning in anno, in the year, but being at the end of the line, the last two letters with the date may have been torn from or worn off the manuscript. We can from this only gather the fact that there was a tradition among the Scottish Freemasons that some one of the kings of Scotland, previous to James the Sixth, in whose reign this manuscript was undoubtedly written, had by letters patent granted to the lords of Roslyn the official patronage and protection of the craft in that country. We see that Brewster had no authority from these charters to make the statement that James the Second had appointed the barons of Roslyn hereditary grandmasters of Scotland. There is not the remotest allusion in either of these documents to the use of such a title. One of William Shaw's titles was Chief Master of Masons, but that of Grand Master was never recognized in Scotland until one was elected in 1731 by the Grand Lodge of Edinburgh. But the charters do not declare that the Sinclairs of Roslyn had received any such appointment from the king. True, the second charter does refer to letters of protection granted by the predecessors of James VI, these letters were burnt in a fire at Roslyn Castle at the time the date of which has been lost. We may well ask, why was the fact of the burning of these papers not stated in the first charter? How is it that there is no certain knowledge of the year when this fire took place? And how is it that while all the other charters belonging to the House of Roslyn were preserved, those alone were consumed by this fatal fire? 
When the last Roslyn resigned in the year 1736 his inherited rights as patron, he certainly did allude to the possibility that some king of Scotland may have granted a charter to his predecessors, but he expressly named those predecessors as William St. Clair and his son, Sir William, the very persons mentioned in the two charters as deriving their rights from the Freemasons in the beginning of the 17th century. But there is no evidence in his letter of resignation that he knew of any charter granted by James II to the Earls of Orkney and the Barons of Roslyn. Brother Mackey, on a critical review of the foregoing facts, felt that we may explain this story of the St. Clair charters as follows. At the beginning of the 17th century, there was possibly a tradition, unsupported, however, by historical evidence, that from father to son, the St. Clairs of Roslyn had inherited the right to continue as patrons and protectors of the craft of Freemasons in Scotland. But in the year 1601, when William Shaw was the chief mason and master of the work, the St. Clairs, if they had ever exercised their patronage and protection, had ceased to do so. The Freemasons, needing at that time such a patron, named William St. Clair as such, and to give a greater prestige to the position, either invented a tradition that the office had been hereditary in the family of the St. Clairs, or repeated one that already existed. About thirty years afterwards, the Freemasons of Scotland renewed the appointment of Sir William St. Clair, the son of the one who had received the appointment in 1601. Brother Mackey says that now, in accordance with the unhappy method of treating Masonic documents which seems always to have prevailed whenever it was necessary to make a point, the writers of the second charter changed the tradition which in the first charter was to the effect that the Freemasons had always appointed the St. Clairs as their patrons, and asserted that the appointment had been given at an early period by one of the Scottish kings. He adds that this was a falsification of the original tradition and must be rejected. The claim was, however, accepted by Sir David Brewster and has, until comparatively recent times, been recognized as a part of the authentic history of Scottish Freemasonry. Brother Mackey held that there can be no doubt that the St. Clairs accepted the honorable position of patrons of Scotch Freemasonry, which had been bestowed upon them in 1601, and retained the office until it was finally vacated in 1736 by William St. Clair, who resigned all claim or pretense that he had any inherited right to be patron, protector, judge, or master of the Masons in Scotland. Upon this, the Grand Lodge of Scotland, which had then been duly formed, first adopted for their presiding officer, under the influence of the example of the Grand Lodge of England, the title of Grand Master, and elected St. Clair to the office. Looking back to the 12th century, when Kilwinning Abbey, Glasgow Cathedral, and Holyrood and other religious houses were built by Freemasons brought over from England and from the continent, we are to suppose, for we are without documentary information, that the Freemasons of that and the succeeding centuries up to the end of the 16th century must have observed the customs of the English and continental craftsmen. During the reigns of James IV and V, the statutes of Parliament show that there were endless disputes between the Freemasons and the public authorities, the former seeking to enlarge their privileges and the latter to restrict them. When Mary ascended the throne, she found the Freemasons suffering under an act passed during the Regency which suppressed the deaconry. This law, with previous ones that forbid their meetings in private conventions or framing statutes, seemed to have deprived the Freemasons of almost all their liberties. Queen Mary abolished all these laws. She granted letters under the Great Seal, which restored the office of deacon, confirmed the craft and the privilege of self-government in the observance of the customs and the exercise of the rights they had formerly enjoyed. 
In the reign of James VI, we find a recognized connection between the sovereign and the craft, the office of warden and that of master of the works being made by the king's authority. At this period, we begin to find reliable records or minutes of lodges and statutes that are trustworthy, by which we are enabled to form a correct judgment of the condition and the customs of the craft in Scotland at that early time. In this respect, Scotland has the advantage of England, where we find no authentic records of any lodge until the 17th century, while the first minutes of the Lodge of Edinburgh date back to the year 1598. Some analysis of the early minutes of the Scottish lodges, and especially of the Lodge of Edinburgh, has been given by Brother D. Murray Lyon in his valuable history of that body. Whoever expects to write a faithful history of Freemasonry in Scotland must depend on that work as almost the only source of authentic facts, as histories of the early period, the claims of Anderson and of Laurie's edition are almost utterly valueless. The minutes of the Lodge of Edinburgh, or St. Mary's Chapel, extend from December 28, 1598 to November 29, 1869. They are in six volumes, all in an excellent state of preservation, with comparatively very few omissions. The first and second volumes, which bridge the space of 163 years, that is from 1598 to 1761, with a gap of only 13 years, supply an ample store of reliable materials of early Scotch Masonic history. The first volume contains a copy of what are called the Shaw Statutes, the earliest constitutions that exist of Scotch Freemasonry. The date of this document is December 28, 1598. The laws it records are entitled, The Statutes and Ordinances to be Observed by All the Master Masons Within This Realm, set down by William Shaw, Master of Work, to His Majesty and General Warden of the said craft, with the consent of the Masters hereafter specified. Of these statutes, the most important for understanding the true condition and customs of the Masonic craft of Scotland in the 17th century are the following. The first point intimates that the laws that were then laid down are but a continuation of those which had been in use before that time, but of these no copy is in existence. The second point requires the craftsmen to be true to one another and to live charitably together. This is an exact accord with the guild spirit to be found in all the old English constitutions. The third rule requires obedience to their wardens, deacons, and masters in all things concerning their craft. The fourth directs them to be honest, faithful, and diligent, and to deal uprightly with the masters or owners of the work in whatsoever they shall take in hand. This point reads like a copy from the English constitutions. The fifth point says that no one shall take in hand any work which he is not able to do properly. This is the same as the rule in the English constitution but the Shaw statutes direct the penalty that it is to be paid for breaking the rule. The sixth provides that no master shall take another's work from him after the latter has made a contract with the owner of the work, who in the English constitutions is called the Lord, under a penalty of 40 pounds. The seventh point is that none shall finish any work begun and not completed by another until the latter has received his pay for what he has done. The eighth point provides for the election by the masters of every lodge of a warden to take charge of the lodge, whose election is to be approved by the warden general. The ninth point directs that no master shall take more than three apprentices unless with the consent of the wardens, deacons, and masters of the sheriffality, or district, where the apprentice dwells. The tenth point is that no apprentice shall be taken for less than seven years, nor shall that apprentice be made a brother and fellow of the craft until he has served seven years more after the expiration of his term of apprenticeship, unless by the special license of the wardens, deacons, and masters assembled for that purpose, 
nor without a sufficient trial of his worthiness, qualifications, and skill. The eleventh point made it unlawful for a master to sell his apprentice to any other master or to dispense with the years of his apprenticeship by selling them to the apprentice himself. The apprentice was to serve the full term with his first master. By the twelfth point, the master, when he received an apprentice, was to notify the fact to the warden of the lodge so that his name and the day of his reception might be properly enrolled in the book of the lodge. The thirteenth point prescribed that the names of the apprentices should be enrolled in the order of the time of their reception. By the fourteenth point, a master or fellow was to be received or admitted only in the presence of six masters and two entered apprentices, the warden of the lodge being one of the six. The time of the reception and the name and mark of the master or fellow were to be enrolled in the lodge book together with the names of the six masters and two apprentices who received him and the names of the intendars or persons chosen to give him instruction. Nor was he to be admitted without an assay or specimen of his work and a sufficient trial of his skill and worthiness. The fifteenth point required that no master was to do any work under the charge or command of any other craftsman. The sixteenth strictly forbade the doing of any work with cowans. The seventeenth point ordered that an apprentice was not to accept any work beyond a certain amount without the license of the masters or warden. By the eighteenth, all disputes were to be referred for adjustment to the wardens or deacons of the lodge. The nineteenth provided for the careful erection of scaffolds and footways so as to prevent any danger or injury to the workmen. By the twentieth, apprentices who had run away from their masters were not to be received or employed by other masters. The twenty-first commanded all the craftsmen to come to a meeting when duly warned of the time and place. The twenty-second point required all masters who were summoned to the assembly to swear under a great oath not to conceal the wrongs or faults done to each other, nor to the owners of the works on which they were employed. The twenty-third and last point prescribed that all the fines and penalties inflicted for any breach of these rules should be collected by the wardens, deacons, and masters of the lodges, and spent according to their judgment for godly uses. Brother Lyon very properly suggests that this code of laws was applicable only to working masons. This is certainly true, but so also were all the constitutions of the English craft and the ordinances of the German and French Freemasons. Originally, Freemasonry was entirely an operative institution. Out of it grew the present speculative system in all these countries. To understand, then, the growth of one out of the other, it is necessary to examine these constitutions and the minutes of the operative lodges, of which Scotland only supplies us with the authentic materials. The great resemblance between the statutes of Shaw and the early English constitution indicates very clearly the close connection that existed between the two bodies of craftsmen in these countries. We are left in no doubt that both took their laws and their customs from a common source, namely that body of architects and builders who sprang up out of the Roman colleges of artificers and in time passed over into the traveling Freemasons who spread their skill and the principles of their profession all over all of Europe and to its farthest islands. We have thus traced the rise of Freemasonry in Scotland to the builders who came over in the 12th century from the continent, and perhaps from England, to be employed in the construction of religious houses at Kilwinning, at Glasgow, at Edinburgh, and other places. Having shown the condition of the craft so far as the scarcity of materials would permit, between that period and the year 1598, when the Shaw statutes were made law, we are next to inquire into the customs of the Scottish craft in the 17th century and until the organization of the speculative Grand Lodge of Scotland in the year 1736. 
In performing a similar task for the Freemasons of England, we were restricted for our sources of information to the manuscript constitutions. These could supply us only with logical suggestions, which made our account more probable than certain. But in tracing the course of the Scottish craft in the 17th century, we are able to take as guides the minutes of operative lodges, which, unlike those of England, have been preserved from the early date of the last years of the 16th century. These have been collected and published by Brother D. Murray Lyon in his most useful History of the Lodge of Edinburgh, a work which in the following chapter we shall freely draw upon for facts, though not always finding ourselves in agreement with the author's views. The facts seem beyond dispute. What we may infer from them may be an error, but we shall clearly separate known facts from mere opinions, no matter how well-founded and cautious the latter are in appearance. Their acceptance must be left to the reader's judgment. And that concludes chapter 57. And next up will be chapter 58, Customs of the Scottish Freemasons in the 17th Century. Thanks for listening and Happy New Year. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.